So, Lord, I thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence in this place. And, Lord, as we get into the word tonight, I thank you for just speaking through me everything that needs to be said, that even now the precious Holy Spirit is moving upon people wherever they are to help give you our best ear, our full attention, our focus, just kind of lock us in to what you're saying. As you speak through me, your seeds of truth. Jesus said the parable of the seed and the sower. I thank you for speaking through me. Everything that needs to be said will go out as living seeds of truth sown into good soil of hearts and minds and lives. Watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. <clears throat> and Lord, we thank you that your word will not return void. But it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it for to do. So we thank you for even now the winds of the Spirit carrying the seed where it needs to go. And the Bible says the birds of the air try to steal the seed. That's spiritual warfare. So we agree together as a church, anything that would try to hinder this word from getting where it's supposed to get and accomplishing what's supposed to is a church. We bind it in Jesus' name. It will back off now and go. And Lord, we thank you for your breakthrough. And we thank you right now that everything will flow, everything will be said, everything will be accomplished. And through this time that your will to be done in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've been dealing with the God of Blood Covenant, so there's a lot of different things that we've covered so far. We're on part seven, I believe, but there's been different, you know, we have to do addendums, and so there's like a part 6B and then all this. So anyway, so tonight is going to be a little bit different, but I'll try to recap a little bit as well, because those that haven't been following, let me just say this in passing, but in the first sermon, I dealt with this. So in ancient times, so you have to understand something. To understand the Bible, you have to understand the Bible from a Middle Eastern mindset. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? If you can just give me your best ear tonight, look this way. Because most of the time, people try to read the Bible, like, for example, here, they will try to read it with a Western Gentile American mentality from, you know, 2020, 2022 mindset, you know. And, and you can't really understand the Bible that way. It was written thousands of years ago in the Middle East, okay? And so that was the first thing that, that we learn when you go to Bible school is to read the Bible in context. And so with that said, in ancient times, there was what's called a blood covenant. We don't really have this today in America and in Western culture at all. The closest thing we have would be maybe a contract that you sign, okay? So a blood covenant back then was the most solemn thing that you could do. And if two parties, let's say two men representing two families, were going to come together in a blood covenant, what they would do is they would take an animal and they would sacrifice this animal. And as the animal died, that blood would go into the soil and they would separate the animal. And they would make an agreement. They would make promises between the two of them. They would walk among the bloody soil. And as they came into agreement, they would exchange gifts. But from that moment on, when they entered into a blood covenant, then it was a very solemn thing, like I said, because if, those, if that party went to war or something was to happen, the other family was obligated also to rise up and go to war to their defense. And it was a lifelong commitment. So with that understanding, that's what was happening when God cut covenant with Abraham that you read about in the Bible. Abraham, remember, separated the animals, and he walked in that bloody soil, and God came down and spoke to Abraham, 
and he made him a promise. And as, they, as God cut covenant with Abraham, the oath and blessings God gave him, through Jesus Christ, we can enter into that. So understand that. And also, that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. God saw the need, and Jesus was sent, and he died on our behalf, and he was the offering. And what happened at Calvary was God cut covenant with humanity. So those that come into that blood covenant, okay, there's promises linked to the covenant. And God takes his end of the blood covenant very seriously, amen? Even though we sometimes have our ups and downs and we're not perfect and, and we may backslide at times and all of that, from God's perspective, when you come into a covenant, he is faithful to his end of the blood covenant no matter what. Okay, so if there's a problem in the relationship, it's not on his end. Now, as we look at this tonight, just understand I wanted to lay some foundation. We've already covered about blood covenant, but we've also been talking about the end times. But I want to share something up front that I find very interesting in the Bible because tonight, as I look at the final battle, I'm also going to talk about being an intercessor. How many knows that we really need to be praying for our families? And let me tell you, it's important to really be an intercessor for your family because nobody else probably is. Have you thought about that? Have you ever considered that your lost loved ones, that you're probably the only person that's really truly praying for them? And not only that, but nobody will ever pray for them like you will because nobody loves them like you do. And so I'm going to show you something about, the, about Job here. It's always funny when somebody's a new Christian because you, they turn to the book of Job, right? You know? So anyway, we're going to look at the book of Job tonight. Chapter 1, verse 1. This man from, was from the land of Uz. <laughs> How would you like to tell everybody I'm from the land of Uz? All right. And there lived a man whose name was Job, and this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Now, he had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants, and he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So, in other words, this man was like a billionaire, okay? He was extremely wealthy. Now, his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their sisters, and, you know, they'd eat, drink, and celebrate. When the period of feasting had run its course... Now, this was Job's heart right here. Job was so concerned about his family. Let me tell you how important it is for you men, especially, that you really rise up and be the spiritual leader that God needs you to be for your family. If you don't do it, who's going to do it? Okay? So Job, he had such a love for his family and such a concern for them when they were done basically celebrating and partying together, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Now, that's interesting. See, this was one of the oldest books that we know of in the Bible, one of the oldest stories. And so this was way before Jesus ever came and died on the cross. This was even before the law of Moses. So during these times, it was something where a family... To be right with God, God gave this to Adam and it traveled down. But for a family to be right with God, the, there was somebody in the head of the home or maybe a priest in the city that would offer up an offering before the Lord. And the blood of the animal 
would bring a cleansing and a protection to the family, okay? It was pointing ultimately to Jesus coming, but this was before there was a Moses in the law of Moses. So Job would make arrangements for his family to be purified. And early in the morning, look at this, Job would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them. And he was thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and maybe cursed God in their hearts, and this was Job's regular custom. Oh, isn't that interesting? So Job, even though he was right, he wanted to make sure his family was right so he would be an intercessor for them. Have you ever really stopped and thought about this part of it? Because a lot of times we just read through it real quickly. But Job would take the time, if he thought that something was not right between one of his kids and God, he would take an, an animal on their behalf, because this is what you did back then, and he would shed the blood of that animal, and that blood would make atonement for his children. And he was making sure that their children were right with God, okay? And so this was Job's regular custom. Now, here's the interesting part of the story that one day the angels, this was fallen angels, evil angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him on the earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And in verse 9, listen to what Satan says here. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, you have put a hedge of protection, okay? You put a hedge around him, his household, and everything he has. Why do you think that hedge of protection was there? I want you to think about this for a moment because if you know the Bible, you can start putting all the pieces together. Now, later on, when God sent Moses to Israel, many, many years later, and God was sending plagues, and some of you young people know about this too, as God began to send plagues on the nation of Egypt, and God gave Israel the Passover lamb, what was the blood of the lamb to do? They were to take the blood and they were to apply it to the doorpost of the home, which even though you did not see it in the natural, created some kind of a spiritual hedge of protection about that property. Because when the death angel came through Egypt, everybody that did not have the blood applied, their firstborn died. But listen, it was, this was an indiscriminate thing because if somebody that was of the nation of Israel, did not put the blood on the doorpost, they would have suffered too. So this wasn't an ethnic thing. This depended completely on whether or not the blood was applied. So here, the same principle. Job made sure that his family remained under the blood, and it brought protection to his family. In fact, Satan himself had to tell God, look, you've put a hedge about him, his family, all that he has, and, and you've blessed the works of his hands, so his flocks and herds have spread throughout the land. And then Job says, but if you'll stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, he'll curse you to your face. Now, the sad thing is, how many knows the scriptures that says Satan has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy? But Jesus has come that we might have life and life abundant. But here's the thing. Most of the time, when people start going through things where something is stolen, there's unexplained death, or there's some kind of a destruction, destruction of a family, or some kind of destruction that came, who's the first person that gets blamed for it? God, every time. 
But the Bible says that Satan is the one that's come to steal, kill, and destroy. I wonder how many times a day, multiplied millions of times a day, God's getting blamed for what the devil's doing. So if you've been suffering loss and been going through stuff, you need to quit blaming God for it and understand the devil's the one behind it, okay? But we know the rest of the story, and I'm not going to go through it, but Job basically got allowed that hedge to be lifted for a time. The enemy did come in to steal, kill, and destroy, but Job never cursed God and never turned his back on the Lord through all of it. And in the end, God restored him many times over what he had lost, okay? Well, sometimes God allows us to go through some trials, and then on the other side of it, he'll restore. All right. But what I wanted to focus on tonight, because I'm going to talk a little bit about the end times, but what I wanted to focus on was that Job, even though this was even before the law of Moses, okay? This would be what the Bible calls those that know the Bible, the priesthood and the order of Melchizedek. How many have read that? This was during that time. It's a priesthood we don't know a lot about. Do you remember when Moses had a father-in-law named Jethro and he was the priest of Midian? See, there was a priesthood there established by God. It was a holy thing. It was a powerful thing, but it was before Moses ever came on the scene, and it changed after Moses because when God brought the law, it became the order of Aaron and that priesthood. But before that, they were priests unto God. Isn't that interesting? And a lot of people don't realize that. But Job was somebody, whether he was a priest of his region or not, I don't know, it doesn't say, but he definitely was for his family. And so what I'm trying to say to all of us here today is if we will make sure that everything is right between us and God, then God can use us as an intercessor to tremendously impact our family. But what was the emphasis that Job put? It wasn't just his prayers. Job, I'm sure, would really intercede for them, but the emphasis was he was bringing his family under the blood. And the blood brought protection. Now, think about this as well. How much more so today on the other side of the cross? Since now we have the blood of Jesus available to us, if the blood of an animal, so many years ago, it now the blood of these animals was pointing to the cross one day. You understand? So it was an act of faith. But still, if the blood of an animal before the cross could put such a hedge about Job, his family, and all that he had that the devil couldn't touch him, how much more so does the blood of Jesus today? And the same thing I would say about the Passover. If the blood in Egypt brought so much protection that death and destruction had to pass over, how much more so today? I think the problem is, is maybe we all need a little bit more understanding of the power of the blood of Jesus. Maybe we need to understand that if, if, if our faith would be ignited, and like I said last week, we would really be deliberate in making sure to put the blood over our lives and our families like Job did and be real deliberate about it, real focused, and we would use our faith to do that, how much more protection would be available to us and our families because it wasn't just Job. See, I think a lot of people think that whenever you do these things, you, you're protected, but it doesn't really affect your family. That's not biblical. It, Job, it affected him and all that he had, his entire family. God's interested in your family. 
He's interested in your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. Okay, if, you're, if you belong to the Lord, God wants to protect your family and all you have. And so this is a pattern that I want to show you because anybody that studied the end times at all, and I have for many, many years, you, you can see that whenever you studied it, and now we've gone through it together as a church, we went through the book of Revelation, all of that, now that you have knowledge, when you look at the news, you're thinking, my goodness, I see things now I never saw before. Since Israel became a nation in 1948, things have been speeding up rapidly. We're moving into the latter days, and we can see that the coming of the Lord is very near. So I'm going to give you a few things in passing because this is not, the sermon isn't about the end times, but I do want to mention these things. As we're living in the time when Jesus is about to come, it's soon, there's going to be amped up spiritual warfare. And how many knows we've all been experiencing that? Individually, corporately, and as a nation, I mean, all over the world, Satan is really amping up his warfare. Now, with that said, this is just my opinion. And again, I consider my opinion here to be a, at least a little bit of an educated opinion since I've studied the end times for a couple of decades. But I feel, and I could be wrong, but I feel we're living in a time called the beginning of sorrows, okay? And I think that it's synonymous with the seals being popped. It's just my opinion. And I believe the rider of the white horse is the Antichrist spirit. And I believe that spirit is moving rapidly even in america who would have thought america with the judeo-christian heritage we have would have so much persecution against christianity and not only that but you can see the other riders of the horses you're seeing the wars you're seeing the death you're seeing the famine all these things are there but you're also seeing so many other things in the world that's going on now with that said the end times are upon us and the bible says eventually it's going to move from the seals, which in my humble opinion is before the rapture. There's going to be the seal judgments, but eventually it's going to move into a time called the tribulation. And I believe that there will be a rapture before the tribulation time. I feel that strongly. But there's still going to be people left behind and there's still going to be a tribulation. Once you move into that seven-year period of the tribulation called the days of Jacob's trouble... The focus moves away from the church and back to the nation of Israel for seven years. And there's a peace treaty signed with Israel and the Antichrist. But listen, the first three and a half years is what the trumpet judgments. Then the last three and a half years, the bowls. I don't believe that people that are really sincere believers that are walking with the Lord and living righteously and, and, and they have that extra oil, remember, I don't believe that we're going to be here for that period. But even though we're not, it doesn't mean that we're not going to be here during the beginning of sorrows. And, and in my opinion, the seals. And so, so many things are going to be happening. And how many knows God needs us to be close to him and to be intercessors, not only for us, but for our families, just like Job. And the greatest way we can be an intercessor is to continually, on a daily basis, bring our lives and our families under the blood of Jesus to bring a supernatural protection. See, you, you're not going to see this with your natural eye, but the devil's kingdom will see it. It's a hedge there. There's something there. So we know, as we've studied through the end times, you guys are familiar with the Antichrist and the false prophet. The Antichrist seems to be kind of synonymous with the spirit of Leviathan. Leviathan is a spirit of pride and destruction. 
And you can see that as you study Job, I think chapter 40, and there's a few other places in Scripture. But you can't help but think about this giant sea monster or whatever, dragon type thing with multiple heads. You can't help but look into the book of Revelation and see that same beast in Revelation. It's coming up out of the sea. It represents the Antichrist. And that particular beast, which is connected to Leviathan, has ten heads and seven horns. This is a political thing. The Antichrist is a political figure. And he's not going to be known as the Antichrist. He's going to be a politician. He's going to be known by a totally different name. But this particular individual, the Bible says, will be called the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition. He's, he's very satanic. And the ten heads seem to indicate ten specific land masses that he's going to rule over, but his dominion will extend, though, to the nations of the world. But it's going to centralize in Europe and the Middle East, the old Roman Empire. So there's going to be ten sections of land. Whether it's already annexed right now, and it's going to be land that we already know is, you know, lines of demarcation. Or maybe he will change that. But there still will be specifically 10 sections of land that will be considered under his dominion. And the seven horns represent seven principalities. And Israel has have, had seven major enemies. Well, they will with the rise of the Antichrist. The first one was Egypt then Assyria, then Babylon, the Medes and Persians, Greece. You remember we studied this at the Hanukkah time. Greece, Syria, that was a major enemy to Israel during the days of the Maccabees, remember? And then ultimately Rome. But once Jesus died on the cross, in the days in that time of Rome, it seems like when Jesus died and raised from the dead and Israel did not accept the Messiah, in time prophecy, it's like you ever watch a video and you push pause? It seems like God paused everything. Israel was scattered. Then the gospel went to the nations of the earth. And here's what's happened. Now that Israel has reformed as a nation and God has moved things now into end time prophecy, the pause has been taken back off again, you see. So there were seven major enemies, seven principalities. We've already discussed this. But behind the rule of authorities over nations... Satan has also placed principalities that try to influence those leaders and tries to manipulate things to be very anti-Christ. Remember, we talked about Gog and Magog, and not only that, but we talked about what Putin's doing now with the invasion of Ukraine and probably how it has a connection ultimately in the end with the Gog-Magog war. But there's principalities behind the scenes that's manipulating these things. And so these are going to be seven principalities, seven major enemies to Israel throughout uh, the history of time that Israel has faced. And the last one is going to be Babylon, the Antichrist system, that will unite the nations of the world. But at the middle of the tribulation, remember, he's going to basically bomb the, whether it be the Vatican or whatever has united the religions, and he's going to demand He's going to set himself up at the, in the temple and demand that they worship him as God. Remember this? And so now and the Antichrist's focus will be the complete annihilation of Israel and the Jewish people. Why is he even doing this? Because Jesus is predicted to come to Jerusalem. 
to the throne of David and reign for a thousand years. And he knows that, and he's trying to stop the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what the whole thing's about. People, it's all this talk about Israel. Listen, God loves Israel, yes, but it's not about a secular nation. This is a war that Satan is trying to stop the coming of Jesus Christ. That's why so much is coming against this little nation of Israel. And people don't understand it. And in natural, it doesn't make any sense. It's a nation the size of Finland. Do you ever see Finland in the news? No. <laughs> Do you ever see like New Jersey in the news like all the time? And the, the UN is constantly trying to, to create problems for New Jersey? No. It's, it's this little bitty landmass, yet... Most of what's going on in the United Nations, most of it targets Israel to try to destroy them. It doesn't make any sense until you understand it from a spiritual perspective. Satan says Jesus is coming back there, and he's going to do everything he can to destroy that. So this beast, Leviathan here, represents the Antichrist. His rise politically, it's a political thing. He's going to unite them. The Bible says there will eventually be a one-world currency. You'll have to take a mark on your right hand or forehead. You won't be able to buy or sell without it. There's going to be kind of a laying down of arms. The arms race will close. I mean, people are just going to lay down their weapons, so to speak. For You remember it says this, they will cry peace and safety, but then sudden destruction will come. That's what it's talking about. He's going to come in as a man of peace, but there will be no peace. And he's going to bring them together. They will be kind of a United Nations type of police force or military. The day will come when our military, and even in America, in our police, that we're going to start seeing more of a UN type of thing trying to invade here. It'll come eventually. But it's going to move more one world in the um, political. And so that's the Antichrist. But the Antichrist won't be able to come to power without first being preceded by the false prophet. The false prophet will be like this. You remember how John the Baptist came and he prepared the way for Jesus to come? The false prophet's going to prepare the way for the Antichrist to come. So the false prophet is going to be somebody, it's going to be exactly like a pope figure. There's Bible scholars believe it'll be the current pope of that time, and it could be. But it will be a pope-like figure, somebody that's a religious figure that has his hands in politics. And that religious leader is going to be called the false prophet, whoever it is. And that individual is going to unite the religions. Now, this is interesting because who would have ever thought that we would see the day when all the religions of the world are starting to find common ground and come together. Used to, religion separated people, but now there's been a movement for many years to coexist. This is a precursor for what the false prophet's going to do. The false prophet will eventually be a religious leader that will be so influential, like a pope, and he's going to find common ground with Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and all these different religions, including fake Christianity that's out there right now and he's going to bring them together in like a unified religious system and through that that unification of the religions and that so-called peace there he's going to use that to promote politically the antichrist to power and we can see these things happening and this isn't just limited to what the Vatican's doing this has been something going on for some time 
But did you know, though, mentioning the Vatican specifically, that they that think about this. Roman Catholicism has had come to the Vatican uh, Muslims, their clergy, to come in and offer up Muslim prayers in the Vatican. Pope John Paul went to worship at a Buddhist temple. He participated in a Native American ritual, the burning of the smudge pot. There's basically been a move for a long time to try to bring religions together. And without getting confusing, there's this strange thing there that unites the Muslims and, and the um, Catholicism because the Muslims believe that um, Muhammad's wife somehow is, is Mary. It, and I think, I think it's the Mary that was um, Moses' um, sister maybe. Anyway, it's just bizarre. So there's this strange thing because also that... How many have heard of Fatima? You remember they had that supposed visitation there? Okay, that was another thing. One of um, Muhammad's wife's names was Fatima. So I'm just saying it's this strange common ground that's being found there among religions to bring them together, but the Bible predicted this would happen. You know, the only religion that this, that, um, this unification of religions will hate and persecute? True Christianity. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody's going to come to the Father but through me, and they're going to have a problem with that. Because in their mind, all roads lead to God, and every path will ultimately get you into heaven as long as you're a good person, you see. It's a false gospel. But once the Antichrist fully comes to power, then he's going to bomb that religious headquarters, whatever it is, whether it's the Vatican or something else, he's going to bomb it, and it's going to be destroyed, and it says the smoke of it will be seen from a great distance. Why is he doing that? Because eventually the Antichrist is going to get to a place to where, yes, the false prophet's uh, religious system, that unification of religion served its purpose. It helped him come to power fully. But once he fully consolidates his power, he has no more use for that. And he doesn't want that anymore. He's going to destroy it. Why? Because he wants to set himself up in the temple and say, worship me as God. That's where this thing's heading. And so we know a little bit more about end times, and I'll, I'll get off this. But remember World War I, when God began to move in the latter days, and he wanted to, to, to let things begin to progress forward, we know World War I happened, and what did that do? It broke the land of Israel open. It broke it free, rather, from Ottoman rule. So then the rich Jews began to buy it, see. And then what happened with World War II? The nation of Israel moved from Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, and they began to be regathered as a nation. Can a nation be born in a day? So it forced the issue of the nation of Israel being born. And I believe, in my opinion, the Gog-Magog war that comes against Israel is going to be a precursor for the rebuilding of the third temple and the institution of the sacrifices. And probably, maybe not, but probably the peace treaty with the Antichrist will enable that to take place. Right now, if Israel tries to do that, it's going to start a little war because that area, that temple area, is controlled by the Muslims. But eventually, there's going to be a peace treaty signed, and I suspect... It's going to be so Israel can reinstitute the temple worship. And the Bible says these things would happen. So I'm just saying all this. You say, well, Pastor Scott, why are you talking so much about the end times? Because I want you to be aware of it. 
You know, we did a series called The Spine of Prophecy where we went real in-depth, and then we went through the book of Revelation together. But I want you to know about it and tell your family because we're already in times right now that these things are beginning to happen on so many different levels, okay? And you can see it. So with that said, the last thing I want to share is this, and then we'll pray, is having faith in the blood. Like I said last week, <clears throat> having the blood, you remember at Passover, every year as a church, I like to do an illustrated sermon at Passover, and we do a Passover Seder. It's always really special, very powerful. I always get a lot of positive feedback, and people that don't even go to our church a lot of times come because they, they're interested. But as we go through the Seder together, it's basically the same exact thing Jesus was doing at what we call the Last Supper. He was having a Passover meal with the disciples and those that were present. And as we go through that, one of the things that we do during the course of the Seder is tell the story of Miriam. You guys will remember this, the young girl. So this young lady was the firstborn in her family. And so this is a story, maybe it's a legend or something, but it's not in the Bible, but it's a story, it's told. This young girl named Miriam, she's the oldest in the family, and she had seen all the plagues fall on Egypt. And, and then Moses told all of the families, he said, look, tonight on the 14th of Nisan, you need to sacrifice this animal, and it has to be a perfect lamb without spot or blemish, and you have to roast it with fire, you gotta eat the whole thing, but take the blood and you're going to either paint or sprinkle it on the doorpost of your home. And he said, you better make sure you do this because there's going to be a death angel come through, and wherever the blood is not applied, there's going to be the death of the firstborn, even among the animals. And so how many knows if you're the firstborn, that caught your attention? <laughs> so that night in haste, that family began to get everything together and they had to sacrifice. And again, the, the Bible says that Moses told them to eat in haste. Remember that loins girded, staff in hand, but you had to eat everything, but eat it as though you were on your way out. Which, let's just stop there for a moment. Well, as we take communion, do this in remembrance of me till I come. There's something about it that we're thinking about the coming of the Lord and we need to be ready when he comes, you see. But as they, as they did that that night, they ate all the lamb, everything that they were supposed to do, and they went to bed, and little Miriam was laying in bed, and she's thinking, did my dad put the blood on the doorpost because I don't remember seeing him do it? So she can't sleep. And how many knows if you were Miriam, you couldn't sleep either. So she gets up, and she goes in there, wakes him up. Dad, did you put the blood on the doorpost? He said, yeah, I did. Don't worry about it. Go back to sleep. So she tries to go back to sleep. And she's really struggling with this. She's like, I don't remember him doing this. So she's laying there, she's, you know, getting really nervous. And so she gets up and goes in there, shakes him again. Dad, I don't remember you doing this. He said, I did. Miriam, go to bed. It's okay. It's all time. So she's laying there, and finally, she just couldn't take it anymore. And she, she goes in there and says, Dad, I'm not going to be able to sleep. I, I don't remember you doing it. I'm scared. And he goes, okay, all right, honey, let's go out here, and I'll show you. So he's got her by the hand. He takes her out there. And they go out to the front, and they look at the doorpost. And you know what? The blood of the animal... The blood of the lamb was there in a bowl, and the hyssop, like a paintbrush, was laying by it. But he, in haste, he forgot to put the blood on the door. And he said, oh, my, I am so sorry. And so together, she watched him put the blood on the doorpost. And then when they went back in, she could sleep peacefully, but he forgot to do it in haste. 
And if, if he had not done it, what would have happened to her that night? There would have been an unnecessary premature death in that family that night that could have been avoided by the blood being applied. So I always tell that story and I always remind the men, we've got to be for our families what we're called to be. You know, she needed her dad to rise up and be what God needed him to be. And he went out there and took care of business and put the blood on the doorpost. Now, <clears throat> just like Job, I open with this scripture. Job would shed blood for his family. He would bring his family under the blood. And even Satan himself had, had to say, there's a hedge of protection. And I can't, I can't touch him. I wonder if all of us would rise up and be the intercessors we really need to be and put an emphasis on the blood, how much thicker of a hedge of protection would be about our whole family and a lot less negative things would be happening. But many times we don't consider these things. We get busy just like that dad. We get busy with life and, and we're rushing around doing all these things and they may be important things, but if we don't take the time to bring our families under the blood daily and we don't take the time to be the intercessors that we really need to be, it could cause that the family is somewhat uh, subjected to some levels of warfare that they don't have to be. And just like the blood, you know, Derek Prince used to say, it's so true. He said the blood uh, that's in a bowl on the ground isn't going to do you any good. He said, you're going to have to take the blood and you're going to have to apply it for it to do any good. Now that needs, to, we need to get this revelation because the blood's applied by faith. Hyssop was, is a common like weed that grows in Israel and they used it as a paintbrush. They dip it in the blood and they would either paint or sprinkle it on the doorpost. But hyssop represents our faith. The blood of Jesus is applied by faith. And one of the powerful ways we can apply the blood is through communion. It's not the only way, but it's a powerful way. So even as you take the Lord's Supper over you and your family, as an intercessor, you can bring your family under the blood of the Lamb. And as you do, it's a faith thing that you're understanding the power of the blood of Jesus being applied. And just, just like in Israel or Egypt, rather, when, when that home applied the blood... It created a hedge about that whole property that everybody in that home was protected. You understand? Even if somebody was a visitor that was in that home, let's say that they weren't even uh, a God's covenant people. If they were in the home, they were under some kind of a supernatural protection because of the blood on that home. That death angel was not looking for anything else but the blood. And wherever that blood was applied, he said, I can't go in there. Whoever's in there is under supernatural protection. I can't touch them. And so that's the focus here is that we bring our families under the blood. And I'm going to tell you that there's a scripture. It's not in my notes. It's not in your notes, but in Isaiah. It talks about, I think Isaiah chapter 4, that, that they would be like a purging of all the iniquity and all the pollution in Jerusalem. And then it says, and the glory would be a canopy, like a defense over that area. Listen, where the blood of Jesus is applied and reverenced, 
Not only does it create some kind of a protection like a hedge, but the glory of God comes where the blood is applied. Do you remember Brother Ralph talking about that? He said for them to bring the ark into Jerusalem in the days of David, they had to keep shedding the blood. And as they were going into Jerusalem, every six steps, they would offer an offering to the Lord. The, hear what I'm saying. The glory was going over the blood. Get this revelation. And just like in the temple or the tabernacle, whenever the high priest would go once a year, what was he bringing into the Holy of Holies? Remember, from the outside the outer court, he brought in the blood that was shed for the nation of Israel. And he would take with his forefinger and he would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat and in the front, and the glory would come down and settle over where the blood was applied. And he would ask forgiveness for the sins and God would pardon the sins. But the blood. So what I'm trying to get at tonight is, is that there's a level of protection and a level of God's presence that comes as we reverence the blood and apply the blood. And let me, let me warn you about this too. God showed me all, a lot of this I'm preaching on years ago. That was one of the reasons why I began to, to feel the Lord leading me, and I've really stuck with it, that we collectively take communion together when we assemble together as a church. And we take it at the beginning, but you don't have to. You could take it at the end of service, but nonetheless, as we take communion together, what we're doing is we're stopping for a moment. We're making sure things are right between us and God. And then it's, but it's a faith thing. If, if we're not careful, we can just take communion and it's just out of religious ritual. And it's just out of your head knowledge. You have to stop for a moment and you have to have faith in what you're doing. The hyssop, the faith, it's applied by faith in that we're bringing our lives, we're bringing this place, this worship service, we're bringing everything under the blood. And when we do that, Without even really realizing it, there's a hedge of protection around this place. Not only that, but there's an open heaven and the glory comes in this place. I've had more people come through here that's told me they felt the Lord in this place. I, that's the one thing that I have heard more than anything else in River of Life the entire time. There's been tremendous healings and miracles. People delivered from the demonic, all kinds of things, baptized in the Holy Ghost. But the thing I hear the most, and I'm talking about even people that are religious leaders, preachers that travel, is I feel, the, I feel God's manifest presence here in a strong way. You know why it is? It's not me and you. It's we're reverencing the bread of presence and the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why he's coming. And because also because we're worshiping him with sincerity. But I believe that the blood being reverenced and applied here, it's bringing the presence of God in this place. It's making this place a holy of holies. Well, you can have that in your own personal life at home. Your home can be that. You can make your home. Remember the series I did called Mikdash, and it, it, was, it means sanctuary in Hebrew. But God wants your home to be a little sanctuary where his presence dwells. But for the presence of God to be in your home, as we all know, you kind of got to be selective about what's going on in your home. 
Okay, if you're sitting around having evil conversations all the time or you're watching all kinds of filth on TV, things like that, God's not going to dwell there. But if we're careful to keep it pleasing to the Lord, if you, if you apply the blood and you'll pray about it, God's presence can come in. Now, we're in these latter days, spiritual warfare's amping up. There's going to be a lot of things circulating. And let me just give a testimony to illustrate this. So, how many remember COVID? Will any of us ever forget COVID? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, you know, no matter what you did, it seemed like it was going to find its way towards you somehow, okay? And so, you know, everybody tried to be smart. You know, you, <laughs> you pump gas, and then you're all, like, really just going for it with the hand sanitizer, right? All right. And, and we all tried to be smart about the thing and not get it if we could. <laughs> Well, regardless, somehow, at some point in time, we managed to not have a problem with it for a long period, but eventually it found its way to attack me and my family. And so all of us got hit at the same time. Now, that's a real problem for me because, you know, not just me, but my worship leader, my drummer, okay, and, and my wife, all of us were down. And so it was like, we, you know, unfortunately, we kind of just had to tell the people, look, we're not going to be able to have service because, and so what I did was, I think we live, did something live stream or something, remember? Well, anyway, when we did that, I really felt led for my whole family that we were going to take communion and we were going to pray for God's healing. So we started, you know, not doing too good, but this is a true story and this happened and they'll all verify this. All of us were at a level of, of not doing very well. And as we were all at my house, because we couldn't go out and about, right? But we did like a live stream thing where we put on some worship and, and everybody was joining us from their respective homes. But as we did this, we took communion together and we were believing for God's touch. This happened. That day, the presence of God came into my home in an awesome way. I remember being, I went upstairs to be alone. When I was there, I remember the presence of God being on me so intense, I felt like I couldn't move. After that, we took communion and prayed about it. Every single one of us started recovering the next day, and we were over it in a very short amount of time, and we were here by the next service. That was a supernatural intervention of God, and it wasn't because of us, and it wasn't because of great faith or anything like that. It was just simply the power of, of the blood of Jesus coming in, okay, and bringing God's presence. See, as we reverence the blood of Jesus, the, the healing virtue of God came in. I believe that's what I was feeling. You remember me saying where the blood's applied, the glory comes, okay? And we've had many times that God's brought healing, and you have too. How many has God healed you from something through the years? Many times. So that was a breakthrough for us, but it's centered around the communion table, and there's many, many testimonies of people being healed and delivered at the communion table. And I want to close with one, one more thing, and then we'll pray. Is I remember I was really praying for uh, the grand boys because, you know, my daughter and, you know, as my wife and I have seen so many powerful things. I remember seeing one time that we were in that service, and my wife had... You remember you used to have some kind of scoliosis. This is a cool story. And so her back had curvature, and it created kind of a, 
like kind of a crease right here in the skin because her back just would stay curved all the time. Anyway, we were in this service and God was really moving in the miracles. And, and so I'll never forget that they had her just simply stand up against a wall. And so, you know, when your back is crooked, one arm short and the other prayed for her and her arms shot out, her back straightened. And we get home, her back's perfectly straight, the crease is gone and it's still that way to this day. So, I mean, we've seen a lot. Of, a lot. I could go for a long time telling all the stories I've seen myself but, and then Brianna has seen so many stories, but I remember really praying for the grand boys, and I was like, I wanted them to see for themselves the power of God. Because how many knows that you can hear about it, but when you see it for yourself? And so I really prayed for them. I was like, Lord, let them see your power. Let them see miracles for themselves. Let them have testimonies of things that they've seen and experienced for themselves. And I was praying specifically about something like that. Well, my wife goes down out of town where, where at the time they were living. And she's there in, in Arkansas. And I remember she took them to church. Remember it was, so this was a friend of Brother Benny Baker that he goes there to preach sometimes. And this brother really operates real powerful with the healings. So he gets there. It's a true story. I'm hoping Dean is hearing this because this happened to Dean. So Dean goes there, and he's, he's, uh, the guy's like, hey, man, come here for a second. Sits him down in the chair, and because of his back or hip or something just being a little off, one leg was shorter than the other. And you can tell when you push somebody up against a chair real flush. And so as he begins, this pastor begins to pray for Dean right there in front of everybody, in front of my wife, in front of Dominic and Jackson, Dean's leg grows out right there in front of him. And uh, I'll never forget this because I had really prayed about this. And so there, my wife's telling me about this, and I was like, all right, they're finally seeing some miracles for themselves, you know. And so you remember Dean came up here and told about it. He said, it felt really weird. Papa, I just felt my leg come out. But so I go down there, and I'm preaching for Chalmer at the time because he's having some health battles. And I'll never forget telling Chalmer and his congregation about his great-grandson's leg growing out because that was the thing that Bert Chalmer, he was a pastor um, out in East Texas. He's gone home to be with the Lord. But that was the thing that marked his early ministry was he would go see people like A.A. Allen and, and he was really into those revivals, the healings. And it meant so much to him that God visited his great-grandchildren with his miracle power. Isn't that awesome? And let me tell one more cool story. Did I tell y'all about the angel story there? And then, then we're going to pray. So before Chalmer died, I had spent that week kind of on a sabbatical seeking the Lord, and I drove down to Cambridge. And it was a really good time for me, and I like to do this periodically where I can just get away from everything and drive and just seek the Lord for days and just be alone and no distractions, then come back. And God really visited me there and, I, and touched me and I, and I got revelation, whatever I needed. And I was coming back and, of course, Bert Chalmer contacts me. Can you come preach? I said, yeah, sure. So we go out there. Of course, we love to go. And my, my wife really loved to go because when she very first got saved, this is the wonderful man of God that took her under his wing as a daughter and helped her grow in Jesus and all that. So we're there ministering. And we get toward the latter part of the service, and I'm trying to be respectful of Brother Chalmer, and I'm thinking, well, before I do something, I want to get his permission, you know. 
So I'm like, well, I feel like maybe we need to close and come up here and we're going to pray or something, if that's okay with Brother Dennis, who's completely ignoring me. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, he's older, you know. So I was like a little louder. If it's okay with Brother Dennis, he's still totally ignoring me. In fact, I think I saw him kind of do like this and look, and I was like, all right, he's, he's doing something else right now. So I'm like, I'm sure, I'm sure it's okay with Brother Dennis, so we're going to go ahead and do this. And so at the time, the Holy Spirit just began to fall. And I remember Sandy came up, and she was on this side, I believe, and she was just really weeping and praying in the, in the Spirit, praying in tongues. And Brianna was there, right? Weren't you there? And she comes up and praying. And what I was ministering on was about being a prayer warrior and an intercessor. So the Holy Spirit was moving in that way. And a lot of these people that were there, began to weep and the Holy Spirit's coming on them and the power of God was really strong in that meeting and and I'm but I'm noticing that Chalmers paying no attention to me whatsoever nor was he paying any attention to the service and I remember thinking what is his deal man you know and and after the fact it was all I just let the Holy Spirit do what he wanted to do and I was just kind of giving the service back to Chalmers I go sit down and he comes up, and this, if you know him, this is so out of character for him. He never does things like this at all. But he gets up there and he says this, because there was an altar there. He said, he said, when I was there, and he said, when Scott was preaching, and he was closing that thing out, he said, I'm sitting there like this, and I look up, and, and it shocked him, because there's, there's a man sitting there just staring at And understand, the altar was pretty close to where he was on the front row. The altar was there. And he's sitting, bowing his head, and he looks up, and there's this guy looking at him, sitting right there as plain as day. He's looking at this guy. He said he was wearing like a, a brown. It kind of looked like something from old ancient times or something. And so this must have been when I saw him do this. He said, I started rubbing my eyes. <laughs> and he said, am I really seeing this? And the guy was still there. And he said this. He said, the presence of God is so strong in this place. And Brother Chalmers saw an angel sitting there on the altar. And I thought that was the neatest story because I didn't see anything. Maybe I need to be more prayed up, right? Because I didn't see it, but I did feel the Lord in that place real powerful. So anyway, there's some miracle stories. Let's go ahead and pray tonight. But I want to take time, if anybody wants prayer before we go, how many have been getting something out of this Blood Covenant series? Okay, my intention in this is to put a lot of focus and reverence on the blood of Jesus. And you know, God has never really spoke this clear to me about a sermon series. I was doing those historic revival ones. Remember that? Because you know, I do these little mini series, right? They're real short, you know, like what, like 20 something sermons. So anyway, I, I was on this real mini series where we were going through historic revivals that took, I don't know, maybe nine months to get through. And so I'm in the middle of that thing. And, and the Lord spoke to me as clear as I've ever heard him speak to me. And he said, and I've, I've felt, I still feel it when I talk about it. He said, when you end this series, you're going to talk about the God of blood covenant. And man, when he told me that, I was just arrested by the power of God. I said, wow. And so this has been something he wanted me to preach. And you know, I've noticed over the last couple years that there's been a strong move in even other circles to get back to the communion table and talk about the blood and all this. God is trying to tell us something. He's trying to get us back that we bring our families under the blood of Jesus and there be protection, 
okay? I believe a lot of things can be avoided. I know sometimes, how many have ever been through such a severe spiritual warfare that you thought, man, it's like I'm sitting here, I'm just trying to hold on like this for dear life, and the winds of resistance are so strong, and you're just, you know, and the Bible says, having done all, you know, just stand firm and put on the armor of God. But here's the thing. I believe that if we get a real, let me say this as I close, but please look this way and hear me. It's one thing to hear a sermon. It's an entirely different thing for God to give you revelation of what I'm talking about. That's two totally different things. We each individually, myself included, we need a real revelation for ourselves of the power of the blood of Jesus and that we begin daily to apply it to us, our families, like Job did, us, our families, and all that we own, bring under the blood with faith. I mean, strong faith that, and even saying it out loud, because Derek Prince used to say that you need to say those things out loud. I bring my life, my family, all that we own under the blood of Jesus. And because of the blood, the enemy has no power. There is a hedge of protection about me and my family and all that I own. And death and destruction cannot traffic here. We are under the blood. There is a power in those faith confessions, but it's with the heart we believe, and it's with the mouth confessions. But It's something that needs to be vocalized, isn't it? And you can feel it when you say it. There's a power in it. So I'm hoping this will really stir up a faith in people. And so this is something I do in my personal prayer time, and it has, it has increased the protection, and it, it has increased the presence of God. Okay, so let's go ahead. I could go into something else, but we'll talk about it next week. But Lord, I thank you for the power of your blood. Can you just get something ready to play back there? Lord, we thank you for the power of the blood of Jesus and the power of your Holy Spirit. And even tonight, I thank you, Lord, for an open heaven in your presence here. And even now, wherever needs are, I thank you, Lord, for your healing. I thank you for freedom. I thank you for breakthroughs in everything that you're wanting to do in people's lives. And even those that are watching or listening to this, Lord, I thank you right now for revelation of the blood of Jesus. I thank you for revelation about the bread of presence. There's some things that just need to be revealed. The bread of presence. Like on the road to Emmaus, Jesus broke that bread and their eyes were open and they saw him. The bread of presence, the blood, the blood that gives us access into the Holy of Holies. Lord, let there be revelation of these things, that there's something in us like a faith that begins to rise up in the blood to seal us off in these latter days. That whatever the devil tries to do, there's a strong protection because of the blood. Lord, we thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Wow. So let's go ahead, if you could, maybe go to a screen or something. And I, I want to take time. We can move the chairs and we